0: Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Colin Woodard. Colin is a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist. He is the author of six books, including his most recent, Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. He is currently the state and national affairs writer at the Portland Press-Herald and Maine Sunday-Telegram, where he won a 2012 George Polk Award and was the finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in 2016. He is a contributing editor at Politico, and his work has appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Economist, Smithsonian, and dozens of other major publications. Welcome, Colin. Thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Colin, in your bio, it talks about the fact that you are one of the most respected authorities on North American regionalism, the sociology of the United States nationhood, and how our colonial past shapes and explains the present. So let's begin at the beginning. If I were at a dinner party and somebody said to me, what is North American regionalism? It might feel obvious, but what's your definition?
1: Um, well, it's that the, uh, much like the Balkans, where I was based for most of my 20s and most of the 1990s, the map, the lines on the map aren't necessarily the critical lines between cultures and historic settlement patterns and all the things that feed into, you know, uh, values, ideas about how society should be organized, about the relationship between, you know, um. Um, individual liberty and the common good between church and state and all of the rest, those lines are shaped by the, the competing settlement projects that came and colonized North America. And uh, each of these colonial projects that formed, like the Puritans uh, project in the New England colonies, the, the Dutch colony around New York City, the the Gentlemen, uh, English planters, the sort of second and third sons of English country manor um, uh, families who came and settled the Chesapeake country, uh, the, the Spanish settled southwest and so on. Each of these different rival colonial projects ended up colonizing sort of mutually exclusive stretches and tiers of the country you know, out through to the 1840s and out a little bit beyond the Mississippi River before there was really significant migration not from one of these colonial groups, these idiosyncratic groups. And if you know the the competing settlement streams and where they went, which people colonized and set the terms of culture and history and assumptions first— You start making a lot more sense out of our history, out of our current political maps, out of a great number of things that afflict the United States and, uh, to some extent, the other two federations on the continent in Canada and Mexico. You know, we're all federated republics for a reason, and that reason is that we're really a collection of competing and not always entirely compatible regional cultures with roots that go back centuries.
0: So you said things start to make a lot more sense. Give me some examples of, you know, for the listeners, what are aha moments if you use the North American regionalism paradigm as opposed to, for instance, the rural suburban paradigm or rural urban paradigm? What clicks into place?
1: I mean, one thing that does very quickly, I mean, the, the low-hanging fruit is just to look at a political map, look at not even a red state, blue state map, but look at a red county, blue county map. And you'll see in most uh, every hotly contested election we've had in our history, you will see the, the, the fissures that match these early settlement patterns pop out on the map. You'll see in 1916 and in 2008 and in 2012, essentially the same pattern, even though the parties, uh, you know, the regional affiliations of the parties uh, swap back and forth as the parties have actually exchanged constituencies and and fundamental platforms. But the fissure lines have remained the same and explains why it is that, say, you know, the northwestern part of Ohio has different values, different political values, different um, uh, priorities than say the greater Appalachian settled, uh, Ohio Valley, including sort of Cincinnati and the Southern tier of Ohio, which was settled via Kentucky and the Western parts of Virginia, not via New England and New England settled parts of New York. So, you know, this tracks back to history when you go back to things like the, um, uh, the various, um, Regional um, affiliations during the American Revolution or during the War of eighteen twelve or the way people voted as the uh, as the critical votes that were leading up to the Civil War played out in by congressional district by congressional district, things like why some congress people voted one way in one part of Maryland and another way in another part of Maryland. It all tracks back to the differences between these regional cultures very very closely, much more closely than one would expect or even i would have expected before really digging into all of this
0: it's fascinating to me that that's true even in a country where it seems like so many people are not actually natives to where wherever they live now am i overestimating how much people move because i'm from la and i'm a native and i'm somewhat of a anomaly in the sense that i've spent my entire life here or do these regional differences hold true even with people Moving around, is there something about those places where it attracts like minded people, for instance? Yeah,
1: that's the remarkable thing. You wouldn't think that these cultural characteristics laid down centuries ago would manage to persist over this much time. You know, that the uh, existence of mass migration and mass retailing and mass media and all of the rest would have overcome those things and diluted it. But as you look at almost any metric for measuring the um, the differences between these regions, they appear to be growing, not shrinking. So why is that? And indeed, one of the reasons, one of the factors is that people um, are indeed voting with their feet. To the extent that people move around, um, social scientists have been looking at people who move and um, where they go from and where they go to and what their values are. And the general conclusion has been that they tend to resemble more their destination than their point of origin. In other words, you know, that every single county in the uh, United States probably has the entire spectrum of political opinion represented. But the question is, is is the dominant ethos of the place where you are somewhere where you feel like, you know, Hey, I'm among people who are who think like me, and this is great, and this is where I belong. Or is this place that you may have been born to completely frustrate you? You know that the um, the various unexamined values and uh, and ideals of the place you're in drive you crazy. And if you ever had a chance to move, you'd go somewhere where people, you know, understand that. That X is X is 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 true and Y is true, uh not the uh not the way people think here. And a lot of people do exactly that. To the extent that they can shape where they move, tend to move. Uh, to neighborhoods and places among like-minded people. And as they do so, because those such neighborhoods are mal-distributed, depending on which regional culture you're in, they are in effect sorting between these regional cultures too. So, you know, the crude way of putting it is that the blue areas are getting bluer and the red areas are getting redder and there are fewer and fewer purple ones in between. And that explains you know, how it is that these uh, cultures continue to persist. Uh, despite people moving around a great deal, and the other more broadly speaking is you know the the argument of American nations and of this paradigm is that the forces that work on humans throughout the world work here too we 're not exceptional in that regard and when people move and you know you have immigration from one country to another, it tends to be absent some kind of you know formal obstacles to stop people from assimilating. People tend to assimilate maybe not you know, you yourself as the immigrant, but your children partially will. And by the time you get to your grandchildren's generation, they almost certainly will have. And the argument is that if you had a, you know, a Martian arrive in the New England settled Yankeedom zone, and you had his Martian brother or sister arrive in the deep South, that, you know, their grandchildren would uh, grow up as deep Southerners and uh, Yankees, and all the way down to the you know, dialect of uh, English that they end up speaking. So that's an effect as well, is that over time, the newcomers, you know, as general proposition, are becoming assimilated in the same sense that people become assimilated when they move from, you know, Germany to France or uh, or Korea to Japan or whatever else you have.
0: That's so interesting. So we're basically finding our fellow travelers. And you talked about voting patterns, and you talked about blue and red and purple Can you give an example of – I'm trying to think of how to ask this, but not just do you vote Republican or do you vote for Democrats, but what are the big fissure lines? I mean, is it – and the reason I'm struggling asking this is because it seems to me that the parties don't have natural – fissure lines anymore in the sense that it's not what's your view on taxes, what's your view on environmental policy, criminal justice, foreign policy. It's increasingly, I hate to phrase it this way, but in some situations, what's your view of reality? You know, what's your view of fact-based evidence? And I don't mean that to sound pejorative, but the Republican Party platform before the election was elect President Trump, not specific policy proposals. So I'm just speaking from that lens. So how do you see, you know, if you were to say, oh, this is clearly a red area, what's important then to that group? What defines that group?
1: I mean, there's, two ways of talking about this one is historically the broad trends for the country and the other is the crisis that those trends have led us to that has really come into fruition in the past five years or so where i'd say that yes what you say is absolutely true and the question between the parties is starting to become a fundamental one between a commitment to a liberal democracy small l small d or some you know ethno-nationalist autocratic kind of enterprise. And that's not, though, what the, you know, the, the conversation historically, even up to a decade ago in American politics was dominated by, and the one that sort of set the um, the political and partisan inclinations over time of the different regions. That argument is essentially, you know, that throughout our country's history until very recently, it was an argument within the liberal democratic conversation, which was about you know, how do you best create a free society and further human freedom, right? as a, How do you execute that? And there was, there's two basic arguments. One is that you do it by promoting individual liberty, and the other is that you try to build a free community. And there are two different philosophies. One, the sense is that government is inherently tyrannical. If you had less government, less taxes, less regulation, individuals would axiomatically be more free. Therefore, that's how you build a free society. You eliminate uh, government and those shared institutions to free up the genius of individuals. The other argument is that no you know that creating a society where um, ordinary people had any Uh, hope of exercising their freedom is a complicated, you know, civilizational endeavor that took thousands of years to perform and requires all kinds of social and civic infrastructure that make that possible, including ways to referee and hold back, you know, the would-be tyrants and oligarchs who, left to their own devices, would maximize their freedom and, you know, in essence, enslave everybody else so that that's the argument is it is it a shared enterprise? Are we cultivating a republican citizenry and you know- uh having a government that referees and patrols to make sure that markets remain free that makes sure that people intergenerationally have a, a a shot at you know having autonomy and the pursuit of happiness as the declaration says, or is it an individualistic enterprise where we need to you know, pull back the government as much as possible. And that explains the regional orientations that you see on our map, you know, throughout history until very recently. You have individual liberty ethos areas like the Deep South and certainly greater Appalachia and parts of the interior West. And then you have areas that have a more communitarian tradition about it being a shared project, you know, that it's done through institutions to Build and maintain a free society, and keep potential tyrants at bay, like the New England settled zone, and uh, and in a different uh, manner, the uh, the area I call the Midlands, which extends through the middle part of the Midwest and out into the parts of the Heartland, and the Great Plains, that had its anchor in uh, William Penn's Quaker experiment uh, along the shores of Delaware Bay, and so on. So, I mean, that was the the conversation. That's why, as the parties switched their positions in that regard. know, the Democrats used to be the party of individual liberty and of the um, slaveholding south and of segregation. And, you know, by the time you got into uh, the 1990s, for sure, uh, it had switched places with the Republican Party in that regard in terms of which one was communitarian minded and which one was individual liberty minded. And as soon as that happened, you see the transformation, the swapping of the regional allegiances between those two parties so that the 1916 map Woodrow Wilson versus Charles Hughes for president and the 2008 or 2012 maps with Obama against uh, Mitt Romney and Obama against John McCain look essentially the same, just with the colors reversed.
0: So it seems like we're talking in terms of regionalism, obviously, a lot about geography. And so I just want to make sure that I understand this as also somebody who listens to the podcast, is does geography then trump, pardon the expression, basically any other difference? So does it trump economic differences, educational differences, religious differences, or is geography almost a proxy for those things? Is, it, is regionalism kind of an umbrella term that sweeps in a lot of those concepts?
1: Well, I mean, all of these things matter, but if you had to pick one factor that is, you know, the most explanatory of all of them, it's this cultural geography. And by geography, I don't mean the physical landscape, um, but actually the, the settlement patterns and the separate cultural heritages of these different colonial era projects. You know, they created, in essence... Different countries or different nations with not surprisingly very different values, and their founding religious traditions were different. you know their founding ideas about how the economy should be set up and who it serves were different. their stories about what they celebrate the, the good society looks like. you know child raising and 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 heroes and everything were very, very different, and that's had lasting implications for the country and the basic you know in in academic terms, the basic um, idea goes down to a cultural of Wilbur Burzinski, who asked himself the question, you know, when, a, when a peoples are, are basically extricated and peoples arrive and colonize a place where there hadn't been people before, how does a new culture get started and propagate itself? And his theorem was that uh, the first group that sets up a successful, you know, self-propagating uh, society will have an enormously outsized influence over the future trajectory of that society, even if their numbers were very small and the numbers of people who came later into that place were very large. In essence, they sort of format the hard drive and it's their you know initial culture that is the facts on the ground that people assimilate to, react to, adapt to, adapt for sure. I mean, they change, but many of the sort of fundamental ideas are have a lot of inertia and remain and have a lasting legacy even three and four centuries uh, after colonization first came and brought them here.
0: So given all of these differences and how deeply ingrained they are generation to generation, I mean, not to skip ahead too much, but what do we do about this as a nation? Is it actually a good thing that we have very differing perspectives, does that make us richer? Or do we need to try and find some common ground? And I do want to get to a piece that you wrote recently in the Washington Monthly, How Joe Biden Can Help Forge a New National Narrative. But first, just the general question of, do we need to try and find more commonality? Or are these differences actually productive?
1: I mean there are potential strengths and certainly the United States has benefited in some critical ways by the diversity of these regional cultures it's created a dynamism of you know thought and ideas and you know cross-pollination that has made our society i think successful in many respects and certainly innovative and um and not tradition bound in that we have these separate traditions competing almost like you know, this free market battle right between different regional cultures. But there are very um, existential problems and instabilities that come with it, too. You know Our federation has always been quite unstable. It was created by the founding fathers in large part because after their you know, success in defeating Great Britain, they were all worried that as independent states, they would fall into war with one another, There are ample quotes from all of them talking about this, the necessity to create a stronger United States government with a second constitution, our current constitution. One of the big arguments was that was the only way to keep us from falling into sort of balkanized war with different foreign powers, siding with one client state here or another. Um, And thereafter, you know, we had secession movements and Appalachia in the 1790s with the Whiskey Rebellion. And then. New England during the War of 1812, considering seceding, and of course the Civil War itself, which brings up a really fundamental fissure that the um, fundamental values between some of these regional cultures are very difficult to bridge. And in fact, for some of them, very difficult to reconcile with the ideals that we declared in the Declaration of Independence, the ideals that our, our federation was supposedly guided by right, those ideas that humans are inherently equal and that they have, you know, a certain natural rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and representational self-government. Those things are hard to reconcile with, say, the Deep South, which was founded by English slave lords from Barbados and other parts of the West Indies who were recreating a sugar plantation, fully formed, you know, chain gang slave society where people were obviously completely unequal, where, you know, sort of a, a perfect libertarian society, you know, in its end game where some people had won the game and kept all the stuff. You know, you had an oligarchy that controlled everything, including politics. Ordinary people weren't allowed to vote. You know, the, in South Carolina, you know, they weren't allowed to vote for, for a president until much later than many other states. And of course, non-white people were non-citizens and enslaved as property. So, you know, trying to reconcile those two things, uh, a revolutionary republic dedicated to the natural rights of man with a classical republican society. By classical, I mean modeled on the slave states of classical antiquity of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where there was great inequality and people had not natural, you know, rights to freedom, not born free, but rather were given the liberties or the privileges to practice democracy if they were lucky. You have a small number of people who could vote and practice democracy at the top of ancient Rome or Greece, and um, servitude or enslavement was the natural lot of the many. How do you reconcile those two things in one republic? Well, our federation has found it very difficult throughout to do so. We fought a horrific civil war over it, and the legacy of those competing ideas one of them, uh, what people call, uh, you know, a civic nationhood, a nationhood defined around ideals, and the other one being, in essence, an ethno nationhood, an idea that only certain bloodlines and peoples belong, and that other people living here don't have equal rights because they don't belong to that in group. Our in group was, you know, the Anglo-Saxon race, you know, supposedly superior in the early 19th century, and that we were the By one interpretation, we were the ethno states of this genius race, right? That's a far cry from the ideals in the Declaration. You know, even if those are just you know ideals, we're still aspiring to them. But you can see the problem there. So yes, we have to work to. We've always had to work to try to hold this federation together and to reconcile those things. But there have been crisis times where you know a, a danger of a collapse has come, and I think we've entered another one of those times. And you can see the same you know issues and rhythms at work now that you saw in the 1850s and, uh, and as we approached a civil war at that time. So yeah, we need to redouble our efforts to find broad consensus, at least among a supermajority of the regional cultures that isolates the outliers and renews our commitment as a, as a, you know, a civic nation, not an ethno one.
0: So how do we do that?
1: Well, one of the ways of doing it is recognizing um, what the battle lines are and to re-articulate that those values in the Declaration of Independence, those those ones that I illuminated before, that you need to um, find a way to bring that and make that relevant today, that the ideas and policies that you're pursuing are in pursuit of those values, that, you know, we are, we're doing this to the tax code, or this to monetary or fiscal policy, because it promotes our fundamental mission as Americans that we set out on the outset to do. That it promotes, you know, the the, the uh, recognizes the inherent equality of all of all humans, and uh, promotes the, you know, the 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 pursuit of happiness and making sure that everyone has the opportunity to do that and to pursue their liberty and stuff. That has all sorts of implications. And they're not just implications in your intellect, in your head, but they're emotional ones. They're driven by values. It's motivating, but people aren't used to talking about it and haven't been for a long time, because I think as as a people, we Americans kind of fell, especially in the 1980s and the the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union as a rival, this idea that, you know, the American way of life was all about the GDP and, you know, the economy and, and, you know, sort of money and material transactions, uh, you know, that states weren't going to matter. People started talking about, well, states do matter, whether we like it or not, the, the way homo sapiens are, our architecture has to do with ideas of belonging and the rest. And I think we let a void open up in our sort of purpose and values as a nation that unfortunately has opened us up to, uh, you know, the abyss.
0: So let's talk about the abyss for a minute. (laughs) Um, One of my subspecialties. You talked about all of these divisions and they sound so ingrained and so difficult to move past, but then also the importance of finding some sort of common ground. And I do wonder, do you think that America should survive as United States or is there some is there some positive role for maybe breaking apart and having different regions and different countries and maybe looking a little bit more like Europe I mean it seems like we're trying very hard to at some points keep this country together with you know a rubber band some paper clips and chewing gum is that what we should be trying to do?
1: Well, sometimes that task does seem daunting. And if history is any guide, then you know we as Americans have found a way to muddle through and hold together, and sometimes with fairly broad cohesion. But yeah, your question is an entirely legitimate one. Can we um, hold things together? And if not, would it make more sense to rearrange things? My first reaction is that we need to try to hold things together because the risks of the alternative are very high. You know, the first of all, would we really, with our history, manage to have a separation that would be peaceful? in the you know short and middle term, I'm not certain of that. If we did have a instead of one United States, four or five confederations of different sorts with very different ideals and politics. And, you know, I think there would be some pretty extreme differences between them. Would they all be friends and allies? Would the possibility for conflict be there, given that they would be smaller entities, uh, vis-a-vis some of the other powers out there? Would the other powers not be Interfering and involving and allying, what what would Russia do? Which regions would Russia line up with? Which ones would China and Germany? I mean, it it almost reflects exactly the things that the founders were talking about in the 1780s about their concerns about the future of a uh, of a United States without a stronger central government. So, for all those reasons, you know, we we need to try to reconcile and pull all of us together. Under you know the ideals that the country was formed on. If that can't happen, then yeah, we need to try to you know negotiate a rearrangement of the relationship between the regions. Does that devolve into a, a weaker center and a more of a European Union like arrangement, you know, where there's a little bit less power to the center and more to the sovereignish states? I don't know. How do you do that operationally? It's it's fraught with various dangers but it may be that we're um, all going to be forced to consider it. There's certainly, you know, you could draw a map where you'd have these regional cultures reflected and you'd have a lot more cohesion and agreement and each of those, you know, resulting countries would theoretically on paper move forward much more happily and be able to solve their problems or not as their druthers suit them. But, um, you know, I don't think that in the real world things would be quite as easy, you know, as a Somebody who, um, you know, covered the Balkans uh, during the early 1990s when there were all the conflicts in Yugoslavia and stuff, my view of the human condition is not super rosy in that respect. So I'm hoping that we can um, revive our commitment to the best ideals in our national story um, because of just the dangers of not doing so and stepping out into the unknown in that regard.
0: So as we're kind of winding down, you said, I hope we can revive our commitment to the best ideals. If we were to give you a platform where you can reach 70% of the American public and their minds are open, what would you say to them? I mean, what specific steps should we take in the next two to five years to try and move forward as what I hear you saying? a Country where we are better together. We are better as a stronger, nationally cohesive country.
1: Well, I mean, if we're if we're to be a liberal democracy, and that was the whole idea of the you know the the American Revolution's ideology, then you know we have to um, be committed to the idea that um, the government and who's governing should be reflected by the will of the people, and that means you're not suppressing voters, but trying to have everybody vote, that when elections come in, you're respecting the results of the elections and not making up, you know, fantasy alternate realities for your own, you know, um, political gain. I mean, those are very basic things for a democratic society to function at all. So, you know, start doing those things if you care about the American experiment and American values. And then beyond that, those values are, you know, the ones in the Declaration and the the declared purpose and the preamble to the Constitution are about ensuring you know intergenerational prosperity and freedom, and that requires that people have a chance at birth to you know be free to to, to have a chance at um, at uh, actualizing their own potential. That um, your prospects are not uh, completely decided by what family you were born into, because. That's an aristocracy, and as you've had policies that have been more of laissez-faire policies since the early 1980s, where you're reducing the role of government, reducing taxes, reducing services, reducing regulation, creating a you know a, a more and more um, sort of you know <laughs> Darwinist kind of society, you're starting to erode the ability of people at birth to have a chance at the you know, pursuit of happiness. And liberty and all of the rest, and that's not what the country's supposed to be about either, so that renewed commitment and recognition as to why those are desirable values and an understanding of the policies that would get you there, and you know bad policies that take you away from that, and that should be the guiding star for people as they think about what kind of society they want to live in and what kind of policies would you know secure and enhance that so that that would be my pitch, but yeah. I'm not speaking to 70% of the country uh, very often, or if I am, they're they're not all listening.
0: We could talk about these issues. We could do a 17,000-part series on this, but I really appreciate you giving us this basic view of regionalism, our differences, where they came from, how we can try and Change them, and whether we should, and and I hear from you saying yes. Let's go back to what the founder said, and let's try and find common ground. And so, I certainly learned a lot. And as uh, loyal listeners of the podcast know, we always end this podcast by asking our guests the same three questions. Which my guess is will have nothing to do with what we just talked about, but we will see. I've been wrong before. Um, First question, Colin: Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I'm sure there's a lot better answers. But um, the first person who jumps to mind, if I had a a decent translator, I'd like to hang around with Mikhail Gorbachev a bit, being somebody who, um, I was an exchange student in Eastern Europe when communism collapsed. I was studying the region. I stayed there through the 1990s. And he was a pivotal figure to having the Cold War end as peaceably as it did. And to be able to chat with him uh, for a while about it all would uh, would be really fascinating. And to be able to hang out with Frederick Douglass, who's one of the central subjects of uh, Union, my most recent book, would, of course, be absolutely fascinating and uh, probably quite intimidating. Uh,
0: I concur. Uh, second question. You're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it?
1: <laughs> is it one meal that I only get to eat once or do I have to sort of Groundhog Day repeating repeat this meal forever?
0: Groundhog Day.
1: Oh, my gosh. What's going to sustain me over time and not drive me crazy? There's only so much lobster you can eat, you know? That's a good question. Oh, my. I think it's going to be coffee. Does that count? It'll dull the hunger like an Americano with a, a little bit of whole milk, but made pretty strong.
0: I'll bring it to the judges, and we'll make a determination together as whether or not that <laughs> satisfies the question. Uh, last question you get one superpower for one hour. What is it?
1: Ooh, One superpower for one hour. I guess the most uh, useful power would be if you genie-like can cause any wish to come true and you could spend the hour coming up with about 45 or 50 things that you might uh, pull off all at once and even have time to correct the ones you goofed up the wording on. I would go with that and see if I couldn't Solve everything very quickly. I'd hope they'd give me some advance warning so I could work out a list ahead of time.
0: Uh, We just gave you that warning. Uh, So (laughs)
1: I'll get to work.
0: Colin Woodard, thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: Thanks so much. I enjoyed it.
0: Colin's most recent book is Union, the Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. You can find Colin on Twitter at @woodardcollin. You can find me on Twitter at LevinsonJessica. Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners. We love having these conversations with you. This is one of those conversations that we've been looking forward to for a long time. And I know that I will come back to it again and again. And we wish everybody a good day.